No, 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 no. We are, we're in John 3, uh, uh, verses uh, 22 through 36. And, uh, and I think these verses are um, so great at, uh, at kind of bringing about uh, many questions. Uh, one question that I'll, uh, that I'll entertain here today in our time together is uh, this idea about ministry effectiveness. What is an effective Christian ministry? Uh, it seems like we have a couple of definitions of it uh, floating around here in the pages right here uh, in John of what ministry effectiveness is. Maybe uh, you have wondered these things in different ways. Uh, maybe you've spiritually invested in somebody, uh, but then they move on to another good Christian teacher or mentor, uh, and then they, uh, they quote some things or they say things, and it leaves you wondering, didn't I tell you that already? Like, why didn't it stick when I said it? Why now with them? We raise children. And see them thriving in Christ as they go out on their own in adulthood, but not at the church that we would have chosen for them. Then we ask, what gimmicks or tricks are they using to, to, to pull my kids to a different church? And maybe Sunday morning numbers uh, of, of any kind are waning, and uh, we've been uh, tempted to ask ourselves, are we missing something? Has the Spirit of God actually left this place? Maybe you don't think uh, those thoughts, but something similar like it. Uh, we wonder, is our ministry effective? It seems like maybe we've been trying, but is ministry effective? Our passage today encourages us to think about this and consider what effectiveness is in ministry. I believe this timeless principle is a very timely one for us uh, today. And so, uh, so we'll wrestle through this, and hopefully we'll arrive at an aligned understanding of uh, of how to measure ministry effectiveness. Um, so uh, as we consider this together, I will give you maybe just the, 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 the refrain to repeat. Uh, the urge for today is to point them to Jesus with joy. If you walk away with one thing, it's that in any of your conversations, the next thing that you probably should do, point them to Jesus with joy. So let's wrestle with the text here. Uh, this first scene, it opens kind of as uh, the book of John uh, reveals itself, it's through narrative. And so narrative is kind of like a story. There's a setting, there's some rising action, there's a resolve. We've seen this happen many times. Uh, uh, strangely enough, in the book of John, we see that oftentimes the question comes and then the resolve happens with this really weird answer. Uh, Jesus is great at this, answering a completely different question. John's going to do the same here uh, today. But we open on our setting here in verses 22 and 23, and God glorifying ministry is happening. After Jesus's nighttime conversation about regeneration, faith, and eternal life uh, in the previous uh, verses, we read in verse 22 that Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside. And with a little help from John 4, we find that Jesus wasn't the one baptizing. He was just overseeing the disciples baptize and administer the baptism of John. Now, John's baptism uh, was based on repentance and symbolized purification from sin. Uh, for more on that, I don't have time to go into it. Uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Keith preached an excellent sermon on beholding God where he explains more about baptism and John's baptism. I strongly encourage you to go listen to it. John, though, was also doing this baptism. So Jesus is doing this with his disciples, and John is doing this somewhere in the neighboring countryside, we think, because we find out that people were also, verse 23, going or coming to John and being baptized. So what do we have here? Opening scene, the fact is that they both, Jesus and John, 
have an active, fruitful, God-glorifying ministry. That's our information that we get. And this may be the case for you uh, in, in some of your areas of life. You may have active, fruitful, God-glorifying ministry happening, whether it's friends, whether it's with neighbors, children, other family members, maybe it's one another here in the church. And no matter how, what the depth or the length of time you have with that person as you are doing this ministry with each other, so long as it's pointing others to Jesus as the Bible describes Jesus, that's good fruitful ministry. That's good God-glorifying ministry. And that, that from the Bible pointing to Jesus kind of ministry is what we just call basically Christian discipleship. And uh, the tricky thing, though, about discipleship, or maybe the tricky thing about our hearts while we're in discipleship is, uh, is our second point, verses 25 and 26, ministry jealousy is always lurking. No matter what's happening, there's always this jealousy in our hearts. Verse 25, though a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, John's disciples did not bring that concern to John. There's no further uh, talk of the purification debate. Rather, they bring something else to John, a different problem. They basically say, the one you baptized is now baptizing others, and in my whiniest voice that I could think of, verse 26, they said, and they're all going to him. He's getting more likes. And we have to give him some grace in this, though. I mean, I've, I've been a pastor in, in a couple different churches, in a couple different towns, and, uh, and I personally have never had uh, the pastor down the street be the one, the only Jesus Christ. Uh, so I can see how they get a little, uh, a little worried here, what's going on. I, I have had some guys down the street think that they're Jesus, but well, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's digressing and not helpful. <laughs> Joking aside, uh, it's, it's important to note that, that what his disciples uh, are not worried about is, is to whom these people are running. They're worried a whole lot more about uh, the change in numbers that the numbers are trending away from them. I mean, that really is what they're worried about. And it sure feels like everyone is leaving, even though we already read in the narrative that people are coming to John and ministry's happening. It sure feels like everyone's leaving. It can be easy to measure ministry effectiveness by numbers, just as John's disciples do. It's not wrong to celebrate when more and more people come to faith in Christ and are growing in their faith and their obedience of Christ. I mean, this, we hear this refrain over and over again, that, that, that the numbers were, were growing greatly throughout the book of Acts. We hear it again and again and again as something that's good. There were more people that came to Christ. But we see um, also that it's not wrong to celebrate when more, and, uh, when more people are showing generosity. It's not wrong to, to celebrate when our budget's looking really good. It's not wrong to celebrate when our, our brothers look bad. There's generosity that's happening in the hearts and the lives and the hands of, pe of people. The thing here, though, is that when we measure the effectiveness of our ministry by these numbers only, at that point, we've completely lost the entire point of the gospel. And that's where the turn of view is. 
I think the key principle in this passage is that the same information about Jesus and John's ministries has two different responses. On the one hand, it creates ministry jealousy for John's disciples who are measuring a certain way. And on the other, on the other hand, it creates uh, uh, something very different in John. He even goes as far as saying it completes his joy. And so we've considered some of John's disciples' response. Uh, now let's take a look at uh, what's different with the way John views Jesus and his role and responsibility in response. So our third and final point, this will be a little bit longer. It's not like a 10-minute sermon. Um, but the rest of our time is going to be under the posture of Christian witness. John has a posture of Christian witness, and he's going he's gonna to say three things, three statements uh, to, to explain who he understands Jesus to be and who he understands himself to be that are really helpful. You see, John's response to his disciples' problem, the way that he resolves this, is striking in that it aims to change their perspective rather than to change their present circumstances. You know, he gets the report of the trending numbers, and what, what we don't read here is we see that John, John doesn't call up a church consultant and I intensify their assimilation and church growth strategies. It's not there. But what is there? John buckles down in clarifying that Jesus is the coming Christ, that Jesus is the sent messenger, that Jesus is the Son of the Father. That's all we read in his response. You see, John understands that his present circumstances are, in fact, evidence that he has faithfully served in a momentary role in God's redemptive plan. And that these evidences then also show that God's redemptive plan is moving forward just as God had promised it would. Thus, his joy is completed. So how do we think like that? I think that's maybe the question we need. To understand what ministry effectiveness is, we need to think like John is thinking here about Jesus. And so I'm going to give you maybe somewhat of a diagnostic, a, a pattern that you can think through on your own as you, as you go through, through life to think more of the joy of Jesus, uh, especially when it seems like the numbers are trending away from us being the voice and Christ be, being the thing that they are glorifying in most. You see, basically the pattern goes this way. John's going to say, this is who Jesus is. And then John's going to say, this is not who I am. And then he's going to say, but because of who Jesus is, it means I'm not this, but it also means that I am this. And so we're going to go through that pattern here. That might be a little abstract. We're going to do it immediately right now. In the next verses, 27 through 30, John says, Jesus is the coming Christ. He says, um, right after that, Therefore, I am not the Christ. So I'm summarizing this a bit. But uh, John makes this like painfully easy for, for incredibly dense people like me. Like, oh, yeah. Thanks, Pastor. Uh, Jesus is the Christ. Therefore, I'm not. I mean, that, that's good. But the, the, we have to say those kind of things because we, we act 
like we are Christ sometimes. You know, what is a Christ? Uh, what, is, what is he talking about here? Jesus is the sent one, the one who is coming, the one that we were waiting for. Uh, this term, it's a Greek, uh, Christ is Greek. The, uh, the, the other word for here is Messiah. This is in the Old Testament, but the Messiah is the one who is coming to bring about all things, the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Uh, some thought he would be this warring king that would restore the kingdom, uh, which he would become. And some thought he would be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, which he would be. Some thought the suffering servant. Some thought that, that he would be the son of man who judges the world, which he would be. He'd be all of these kinds of things, but we package all of that up into this word Messiah, which we read here, Christ. That's who Jesus is. And so it's important for us to say that's not who I am. When we want to get on whatever microphone we may have and be that warring king to establish the kingdom as we understand it, we need to remember that we're not Christ. That's not our, that's not our job or they're the son of man, that we, that, we, that we judge the world of their sin. That's not our job. That's the Christ's job, and we're not him. That we're the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We can't make people good enough, but he can. It's for a totally different way than, than we don't expect. And so we need to tell ourselves, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Christ. But that doesn't just leave us as saying that and then moving on. Right here in these, in, these, uh, in these verses, the answer is something like, rather, what am I? I am one who has been sent before him to prepare people for his glorious coming. I am one who has been sent before him to prepare people for his glorious coming. You see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all, all understand that John the Baptist was the messenger who was sent to prepare the way for the Lord as promised in Malachi 3. This is a responsibility of preparation. And it's a responsibility that John is overjoyed with. I mean, so, so much so that he gives us a picture. He says, it's like this, I, I, I consider myself the friend of the bridegroom. He understands he's preparing as the bridegroom would the, the wedding of Christ. You see, back then, the, uh, the, the friend of the bridegroom was kind of our equivalent of the best man. And though now today we have, you know, like the bride or a coordinator or planner or friend of the bride or, or whatever, they might uh, put together and plan out the wedding. Now, back then, it was, it was the best man who did this. Now, I know a lot's changed back then. I mean, that's helpful for us to understand what John thinks of himself, but I mean, it, it doesn't translate now. I mean, like a best man planning a wedding now would be pretty awful. <laughs> It'd just be terrible, you know, like a couple of people would show up, maybe, maybe the pastor would have been thought of, and, uh, and then everybody gets, you know, made right on the way out. <laughs> maybe some of you are like, wait, I think I should do this. The, uh, this would have made every, this would have made the whole day uh, better. The, um, but either way, he's the one that's planning this. And one commentator says, I, I think it just so, so poetically says, the best man back then organized the details and presided over the Judean wedding. He found his greatest joy in watching the ceremony proceed without a problem. Any of you who have planned a wedding, you can, you can resonate with this. Like, it's, it's working, it's happening, it's going. But also in knowing that the groom and his bride were being united with great rejoicing. Like, the event is working and happening, but also the bigger thing the love is being bound together, like the thing is happening that we want. We're not just celebrating that, 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 that the party is great. We're celebrating that someone's reality changed. This is wonderful. 
And so I, I, at this point, when, when Stefan was reading the text, I, in my immaturity, imagined um, the genie from Aladdin as he's like singing the Prince Ali song and Ali is standing there coming and arriving and, and he's just running around, running the crowd and be like, look at him, you're gonna love this guy. That's totally what John is doing. He's crazy, he's weird. Uh, but he's so excited for this, just as John is prepared for the coming of Christ, so also we prepare for the return of Christ. You see, the wedding has not yet come. Both us, both of us have a role in preparing creation for the coming wedding of Jesus to the church. And a glorious one it will be. The coming together of Christ and his bride, Ephesians 5. We are not overly aggressive friends of the family or brides who are pushing our way into this wedding planning. I know some of us are like, now I'll let you do your thing and, and we just stand back. But, but other of us are, are too far back there, nor are we passive observers of the preparation. And we don't want to take too much ownership and we don't want to take not enough of this, but the passage tells us here in verse 27, a Christian, you've been given a responsibility to prepare and that responsibility is from heaven. You are told, prepare. Prepare the way for the Lord. Speak of him. Celebrate him so that people could say, aha, that is the bridegroom, and this wedding is coming. When they go to the bridegroom, we are not going to mourn on that day that the church has left our planning, but we will celebrate that the wedding has happened. So let's receive, let's receive this ministry of preparation and get to it by pointing them to Christ with joy. For whatever length of time we have someone, for however the depth or however deep we go with them in discipleship, we've been given them from heaven, and that responsibility is for us to point them to Jesus with joy. And then in this joy, as we see this kind of discipleship happening, the joy of Christian witness says, he must increase and I must decrease. So that's the first thing that John says. He says another thing. He says, Jesus is the sent messenger. Now this goes to maybe a different idea in verses 31 and 34. To this point in Israel's history, there have been many uh, men of God. There was kind of this term man of God in the Old Testament. Uh, they've spoken on behalf of the Lord. They've, they have proven their appointed and authoritative role uh, through signs. Uh, a great example of this would be uh, 1 Kings 13. A man of God comes and they say, prove it, show us a sign. Similar thing seems to be happening to Jesus at every turn here so far in our narrative. But here's the thing. Uh, these men of God were only able to speak what they'd been told. They'd be kind of given a message and then they go and take it. Now, Jesus declares the message of God. But John tells us he's so much more than just an employed human to go say something. Jesus comes from heaven. And therefore, he's above all. He has an authority. Authority. He has authority because he has experience. You see, he bears witness not to the message that's been given to him, but also he bears witness to what he has seen with his eyes, what he has heard with his ears, as he was living in the very presence of a holy God. He's not saying, someone told me to tell you this. He's saying, this is what I've seen. This is who I am. And there's more about Jesus' authority. It's not just simply from his experience that he gets authority. He has divine authority from the creator God. 
In John 1, 32, the baptizer says, I saw the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, and it remained on him. Here, in chapter 3, verse 34, Jesus disting- or he distinguishes Jesus as the one in whom the Spirit has been given without measure. So much so that Jesus does not baptize with water. Again, we, we hear he's not the one baptizing that way. But rather, what do we, what do, we do know? is that he baptizes with that very Holy Spirit in, uh, in, cha- in chapter 1, verse 33. I mean, baptizing with the Holy Spirit, how does one even do that? That's some incredible kind of power. I mean, it's, it's like um, a great example would be uh, when, when Donald Trump says you're fired, uh, we all kind of are like entertained and try and imitate how he says it, and it's, it's fun and entertaining. It's quite a different thing when your boss, who actually has the authority to change your reality, says that same line to you. Jesus is not play-acting or imitating a divine messenger. Jesus speaks with the power to change reality. All of this is to clarify a lot of what the, what the first chapters of the book of Hebrews are saying so wonderfully. Jesus is the better messenger because Jesus is himself the message. You know, his message in our context here is something like you baptize to show your desire to be made new. And this is a good thing. However, with my authority, I alone can actually make you new. I can change your reality. I can clean you. And not simply just wash your hands so you can go into the holy place. I can clean your conscience through forgiveness of sin. I mean, we just prayed uh, the prayer, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's as much as a messenger can say, but Jesus says, I do that. Okay. United to, Jesus says, united to and abiding in me through faith, purification is not a repeated action that I do for you as you sin, but rather, it's an identity that we share. We are purified. Through faith, you can be made new. Through faith, you are made pure. And I know, there's a very good chance, if you are, if you are like me, you find those, that kind of a reality to sound great, but you also find that reality to be incredibly difficult to actually really believe for your life. And so I'll say it slowly and think the God who can change your reality has said this to you. Through faith, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, you can be made new. You can be made pure. That is great. And so if Jesus is the sent messenger, what does it mean for us? It says, uh, Jesus is the sent messenger, therefore I am not the source or the end of truth. I say it that way because uh, I like to be the messenger and I like to think that my thoughts are the one that, that ends the argument. But Jesus is that better messenger. If it's not mine to make up the reality of the argument or to find the accuracy of it, then what am I to be doing? Rather than my job is that I am one who has received his testimony. You see, there was a, there was a time back in, uh, in, the, in the church of Corinth that what a 
hot mess. They were, uh, they were something. Um, but the church of Corinth, uh, Paul writes to them, 1 Corinthians chapters 3, 4, he's cleaning up a bit of a mess here. I mean, at the, the very first part of, of 1 Corinthians. He's cleaning this up. There's this argument that goes on between, uh, you know, who's the better guy? Who's the real, you know, authority here? Uh, Apollos or Cephas or, or Paul. And, and he explains that any Christian witness is all set under Christ and God. That's a really fast summary of 1 Corinthians 3. The next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he kind of, here, here's the point. And maybe this point is helpful to you and I as we think, what do we do as one who has received the testimony of Christ? He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. I'll say that a little differently. That we should regard us as servants of the one with ultimate authority to change reality and as stewards of the message of salvation we have received. That posture, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, that's going to change the way we measure ministry effectiveness. From are they staying to are we stewarding the message well? So the last point that John makes in, his, uh, in verses 35 and 36, as he says, Jesus is uh, the Father's Son. Now, John has already said this very clearly in uh, chapter 1, verse 34, that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't know if there's a clearer way to say that. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, but after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in, uh, in chapter 3, we understand that faith in the Son of God is forgiveness of sins, grounds for salvation, for eternal life. And so we understand that the Father's Son is the Savior. And so, as our little mantra goes, Jesus is the Father's Son, therefore I am not the Savior. Uh, you, can, you can be there for someone. You could try and help them find good, godly ways to resolve their, uh, their problems of the day. You can even be in a comfort or a refuge for a time. But you're not the end of that. You're not the one that can fix that. You're not the one that can actually be that refuge. You could truly help them by pointing them to the one who can. You cannot save people from anything. And if you've ever tried and you've been frustrated, you've learned that lesson. Only Christ can save people. And so the best that we can do as one who receives his testimony as one who, uh, who is not the Savior, is to simply believe and point people to the Savior. So, I am not the Savior, rather I am the one who believes in the Son. Now, he goes into this, this language here of verse 36, and he says, uh, whoever, uh, what is it? whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, we've just talked about that, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's somewhat of a poetic equating of belief and obedience kind of all to the same. I, I think that we could nuance this, you know, a whole lot, but that's not the point of, of today's sermon here. It sure seems like, though, in the context of John, that that idea of belief is, is not simply an invitation, which it is, an invitation to that relationship, but it's also actually a command. I mean, throughout the book of John, Jesus says the word believe, and it is an imperative. It is a command. He says, I'm the light. I'm exposed to light. Here's the reality, that there is wrath of God. There is holiness of God. 
but also I've come not to condemn the world, but to save it. So if you align yourself with the truth as it is, you are saved. You, you, you are moved to e eternal life in the presence of God forever. And so believe it. Believe reality is what he's telling us to do. A very clear statement that Jesus uh, says of this is in John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I think that's just a, a, a sweet verse. I think a lot of times you get believe it, you know, kind of as I maybe just sounded like a couple seconds ago. But the, verse, the sentence Jesus says before that, let not your hearts be troubled. I think that's so great. Why are you hurting so much? Why are you hurting so much? You don't need that. Just believe. And we'll figure out how to do this. I mean, that's such a great command to give. That's one of the gentlest commands I've ever heard someone, and it's such a compelling one. So we've heard what John has to say. Let's make some sense of it here for our lives. Um, what does effectiveness mean when talking about ministry? I think considering all of these, maybe I'd throw out the idea that Christian ministry is effective to the extent uh, that, it, uh, that it facilitates or, or it puts forward a, a prayerful speaking of the Word of God, that the Word of God is present, and prayerfully so, over time with the result that people come to an increased faith and obedience in Christ. So it's giving people the Bible over time with the result that they have increased faith and obedience in Christ. And a very simple way to say this is to point them to Jesus with joy. Effective ministry points Jesus, that points to Jesus from the Bible with joy. So maybe one way we can think about this, uh, a different phrase that might stick a little bit here, is, uh, is maybe to consider your, your, your own life as a, in that everything we do is a means to an end. Now you are a means to an end. Here's a way that we can explain this. So think of yourself this way. Uh, you can draw on your notes, if you're taking notes, you can draw a cross. That's Jesus. Uh, and then you can draw an arrow pointing to that cross. That's kind of like the redemptive plan of God unfolding, pointing to Jesus. So there's a cross, there's an arrow, and you can put a dot on that line in the arrow. That's you, that's me, that's Stonebridge Church, that's any of the classes or the groups that we're part of, that's any sermon that you hear. It's just one dot pointing to Christ. In fact, that dot is actually like all of you know, American evangelicalism. There's just one little dot of all the witnesses that are pointing to Christ. It helps us to remember that's the point. We, we're all part of that line and that arrow that's pointing to Christ. By adopting John's perspective of, his, of this ministry, it was only a part of Christ's redemptive work. We've clarified understanding of effectiveness in ministry based on new and growing faith and obedience to Christ. If we're trying and people are getting on board and going towards Christ, say yes, no matter where they are, effective ministry has happened. You see, and then it, it helps us to think not simply, I'm a dot on a line. That's kind of a weird one to think. Um, uh, Paul David Tripp, he, he's written a book, and the title alone is just, I mean, so helpful, so that's all I really need to explain here, is he has a book called uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. I think that's exactly what John is thinking here. I am simply an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. 
And I'm going to take that, 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 that analogy, that, that idea, a little bit further here. It's like the Lord is building His kingdom and employs faithful believers to take part in His redemptive work. And He grabs us and He uses us. We're part of it. But if we're, if we're honest, no one ever finishes building a house and then they invite everybody over and they're like, hey, everybody, please come over. Look at this impressive hammer. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean that you don't mean anything. You're, you're, you're helpful in it. It just means that we're not the point. Stonebridge Church may be here or not, but if we proclaim Christ, we've done our part in building the kingdom. I mean, it's just a great thing. It's such a freeing thing to think. We don't have to be the end all, be all of Christian ministry. But when we think about it, I'm sure you're there with me, even as I'm saying this, it's a little unnerving. Like, wait, do I not mean as much as I thought I did? That's just maybe an encouragement I'll give you is, yeah, it's tough. This is really tough. The Apostle Paul, I've talked about him already. He had people that were, that were preaching, that were leading churches and all that kind of stuff, and, and they all had all kinds of different motives. He gives us an encouragement, maybe a way that we can think about life, think about ministry as we, uh, uh, in a similar way that, that John does. In Philippians 1, verses 15 through 18, he says, is it, uh, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. But then in just such plain language, he says, but, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. I love that. What, what the important thing is, is that in every way, whether uh, from false or true motives, so in, in every way that Christ is preached. That should be our measure, that Christ is preached. The true Christ as we see him revealed in Scripture is preached. And because of this, he ends it, and because of this, I rejoice. There it is. My joy is complete, he says. Christ has been preached, even by that guy who's trying to steal my people, even by that wonderful author who now my kids love and quote all the time, and he's just saying the things that I was saying. Praise God, Christ is preached. I rejoice. But also because it's tough, we can just be real people too. We don't always have to be these pious, you know, Christians that are like weird. Express your gratitude to people. Uh, you may have had someone that, that, that invested into you spiritually. And for whatever reason, I mean, especially for good reasons, you may, you said, hey, I, this person is helping me now. I know I've had that. I can, I can almost chart voices that were key at certain points in my life that are now not that voice in my life right now. And there was nothing malicious or, or, or weird about fallout of relationship, but sometimes it sure feels like that. And so maybe let's just like smooth that over and make it clear by saying thank you to the people that have helped us along the way. They just named that they did a work and it took their, 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 their emotions, it took themselves, it took laboring and praying for you and just say thanks. And not simply say thanks. I mean, thanks is great, but also name exactly what it was. You helped me read the Bible this way. You helped me understand this aspect of God. You helped me do this, live out God's truth in this way in my life, in this season, and thank you for it. I mean, that's so great to do. But also, if you're a person who has sent someone, have wondered about this, uh, that, that they're thriving still in the faith because you've done good gospel work there, and the Lord has, has, has come, and there's been a, a constant faith uh, and a growth in their life, just take time rather than saying, God, why are they leaving? Maybe say, God, thank you for the work that you're doing in their life. 
This is good for us to do just for interpersonal relationships, but it's also good for us to build a habit of gratitude. But in all of these things, just as John uh, points to Christ, the big urge that I'd like you to take away, that I think our text is really pushing us to, is to point them to Jesus with joy. So when you ask that question, what should I do next with this person? What should I say next to this person? Don't think about the future of where they might be or what the next conversation is. The immediate next thing you can always do is to point them to Jesus with joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have revealed him in such, such poetic and illustrative and oftentimes confusing ways here in the, in, in the Bible. Thank you that it gives us pause to reconsider maybe the assumptions, the definitions, the postures, the habits that we have that maybe aren't so helpful. Thank you for the effective ministry of John, for the effective ministry of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the effective ministry of so many Christian witnesses and churches for the last 2,000 years. Thank you that there have always been people pointing others to Jesus. I pray that you would make us increasingly a people that are known by a focused pointing of people to Jesus, even if it means that we decrease so that he increase. Pray that you would give us a spirit of humility. But even as you give us a spirit of humility, I pray that you would give us a spirit of confidence because we are grounded in our presentation of Jesus by your word and your word alone. Pray that you would help us to be a people who are grateful, people who are always seeing ways in which we can praise you because they abound each and every day. I pray that you would increase us to be a people consistently say my joy is complete because Christ is very clearly coming and people are being drawn to him. Thank you for Jesus.